This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. That is the 600th home run in the career of young Albert Pujols. And the voice of Victor Rojas, the television voice of the Los Angeles Angels, who is our guest today here on Play by Playcast. Not only is Victor Rojas the guy that was able to call, or one of the guys that was able to call Albert Pujols' 600th home run, we will get into it here on the podcast. He is, I've, I've got to imagine, a very exclusive club of people that have called multiple 600th home runs because when he was doing radio with the Texas Rangers several years ago he also broadcast Sammy Sosa's 600th career home run sets up outside here here's the one two Sosa swings drills one to right center field this could be it Jones is going back at the wall gone big fly Sammy Sosa number 600 puts the Rangers on top five to one a couple of monumental home runs and some pretty dang good calls there from Victor Rojas as well to tag the home runs by Albert Pujols and by Sammy Sosa. And we will get into it on the podcast. It's very cool, actually. Uh, Victor will tell the whole story. I don't want to spoil it now. But if you search for Albert Pujols' 600th home run on YouTube, yes, you'll find video of Albert Pujols hitting the actual home run. But you will also find video of the booth. You get to see Victor Rojas as he makes that call. And it kind of is a neat pull-back-the-curtain moment on broadcasting. Uh, Anyway, this is Play-By-Playcast. Victor Rojas is our guest. Our Twitter is at PXPCast. Mine is at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. Feel free to interact with the pod. Uh, Retweet it if you enjoy it. Quote, tweet it, whatever. Let people know that you're listening and help spread the word about, uh, about the pod and about other guests that we have had on or guests that you would like us to have on in the future. Our back catalog is always available. That is completely free and open to you. If you scroll back through iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts, uh, you can listen to, I believe this is episode 59, all the way back to episode one with CBS's Carter Blackburn. This podcast uh, was taped in person this week. So uh, uber thanks to Victor Rojas for that. I was in Canton, Ohio on Tuesday afternoon, got there for Wednesday's Mid-American Conference Football Media Day, and I figured while I was in town, and I drove myself, I had to get back Wednesday night for a Jewish slow-pitch softball doubleheader. That's a a weird fact, but that is true. Uh, So I figured if I was going to drive myself, I would see if I couldn't make a detour to Cleveland on Tuesday, about an hour north of Canton. And uh, reached out to Victor Rojas because I saw the Angels were in town to, to see if he would do the pod. And uh, generously agreed that once he got to the ballpark, uh, he would take some of, I have to imagine what would otherwise be his prep time, 
and sit down and tape this with us. So we taped it at about 3.30, got done about 4.15 uh, taping this, and then I'm, I'm sure I sent him into a scurry to, to get everything ready for the broadcast. It was fun for, for that reason, and also because I got to meet Jim Rosenhaus, by the way, who was on the pod several weeks ago. You can, again, scroll back through and, and find the episode we did with Jim. Um, I had never met him in person, so I popped into the, the, uh, the Indians radio booth and uh, said hello, found out he's a listener of the pod, not just a guest of the pod, but a listener of the pod. So, uh, Jim, if you've hit play, thank you to, uh, to you for doing that as well. Let's get into Victor, though, uh, specifically, because his story is cool and unique, like all of ours are, in terms of how he got into broadcasting and how he's climbed the ladder to where he is. Victor is the son of Cookie Rojas. If you didn't make that connection, Cookie Rojas, of course, longtime player and coach. When I grew up going to a lot of New York Mets games, he was on Bobby Valentine's coaching staff. Those were the, the Benny Agbayani and Butch Husky and Ray Ordonez and Edgardo Alfonso Mets. And as a kid, I always thought he was great because his name was Cookie. My dad liked him because he played for the Phillies. But uh, he grew up uh, the son of a player and the son of a coach and eventually got into baseball a little bit later in life than most of us. And he got into it going to independent baseball. The Newark Bears, who do not exist anymore in the Independent Atlantic League, and uh, he will talk about this uh, more in depth, but he became not only the radio analyst originally, and then the play-by-play voice, but he also became the assistant general manager and then general manager of the Newark Bears while being the radio guy. And when you're the GM in Indie Ball, that means you're also signing players. So he signed Jose Canseco. Uh, among some other guys that we'll get into. But from that, wound up in the major leagues with the Arizona Diamondbacks, which evolved, and then he wound up with the Texas Rangers, and then, of course, he winds up with the Los Angeles Angels, uh, where he's really become a masterful broadcaster on the television side. So as that as the groundwork laid, let's dive into this week's episode of Play-By-Play Cast with the television voice of the Los Angeles Angels, Victor Rojas. I don't know how long this uh, podcast is supposed to be, but this could be a very long-winded uh, answer to your question. But, um, you know, the uh, the short of it is I had gotten to a point in my life, and I was about 31, 32 years of age, of working in baseball front offices. And uh, not baseball, just sports in general. And I was kind of at a crossroads and personally and, and kind of dealing with a little depression stuff. And um I met someone and a uh, very encouraging person who's still my wife today. And, you know, she always told me to kind of just, you know, do whatever makes you happy. And I was working at a customer service in Nordstrom in Boca Raton, Florida, when I uh, decided to somehow try to find a way to get into minor league broadcasting. And I thought the best way to do it was, um, you know, still being 31, 32 and having played professionally, that uh, I could try to find an indie job somewhere as a player. And then try to hook up with, um, you know, the team's radio station, see if I could do some, you know, interviews and be a sideline guy, just trying to learn the business. And um, called a couple of friends, and uh, nobody was really interested, you know, on the player portion, because that's where you can make a little bit of money. And um, I happened to have a friend who was uh, coaching for the New York Bears up in the Atlantic League, Tony Farrar, who's since passed away. And uh, told him what I wanted to do. And Rick Cerrone, the former catcher for the Yankees, owned that team. 
And so I sent him my resume, and he passed it along to Rick, and I got a call, um, gosh, uh, from Tommy Setner, who was the GM at the time, and um, said he wanted to talk to me. Actually, Rick called me first and then Tommy. But uh, Rick said, you know, I don't, I'm not interested in you as a player, um, but I like your background. I think you can help us here in Newark with whatever sales and marketing. You can help put the team together, and you could do the analysis on the, on the, on the radio broadcast. And so I took the job. And, um, you know, as I tell I was up there in January of 2001 and not even a year married. My wife came up and she was hired as the office manager. So we both worked for the Newark Bears. And uh, I was there maybe a month and a half and our play-by-play guy quit. And then, you know, we got into the season and our GM got fired and I became the general manager too. So it was it was a fun interesting first three months of my quote-unquote broadcasting career um and along the way you know i, I signed uh signed some big leaguers that uh you know people kind of knew of. i knew i had signed jack armstrong who was with the marlins when i was there as a bullpen catcher and then jamie navarro who i played briefly with down in miami and then canseco kind of came to be when he got released out of spring training um and then it just kind of snowballed from there lance johnson we uh, uh we had uh, Jimmy Laritz joined us later. I mean, it just became kind of this uh, this former major league hub, you know, being close to New York City. And it kind of evolved and gave, kind of gave us some uh, a little bit of a spotlight to the league and, and to the team. And along the way, I started doing games. And then that that fall, I got connected with Jeff Spaulding at uh, MLB Productions, who put me in contact with Andy Roth at MLB.com. MLB.com back then was just a web portal that was starting to go into radio. <clears throat> and then so they had MLB radio, mostly just morning shows. And they would do some video clip stuff um, at the, uh, in the playoffs in the World Series. And so I ended up getting together uh, with Andy. He hired me as a, as a morning show host. And um, so I kind of peeled back my duties at Newark, and I worked with Jonathan Mayo on the, the baseball breakfast in 2002. And 2003, but uh, 02 was the the real first foray of being attached to Major League Baseball while still doing minor league games. Um, I was fortunate enough to call the 02 All Star Game in Milwaukee, the, the, the infamous tie. Uh, I had a really good call on on, on the game. It was um, I'll never forget. It was a Damian Miller double to left center field with Jimmy Rollins at first base, and he scored from first. And it was like it's the first time in a year. My stuff is awful. I think we all think our stuff is awful as broadcasters, but it was really bad for me. And it's the first time that I I listened back on that, and I'm like, man, that that was that was pretty good. Like I nailed that call, excitement, call, everything for a radio broadcast. And um, so I did that and had fun. And then uh, towards the end of '02, you know, my wife and I started talking. It's like this is this is getting to be kind of pricey. And because um, we had a home in Fort Lauderdale and we were paying rent and all that stuff, we weren't making much. And you work in the Atlantic League, you know, <laughs> you don't make much in the Atlantic League. And um, through a family friend, Buck Martinez, who had an agent, I met with his agent and just to kind of be a someone that give me some guidance. And he listened to my stuff and he critiqued it. And then fast forward into the beginning of '03. Um, after we had already decided this was going to be our last year, so we can't do it beyond this. Um, the Diamondbacks were looking for a radio analyst. Rod Allen had left to go to Detroit, and they needed someone on radio to do 162 games. Kevin Kennedy is a client of my now agent, 
and Kevin was still doing Fox Saturday Baseball. So they liked Kevin. They liked the cachet that Kevin brought because he was on every week on the national stage. But they needed someone for 162. They, didn't, they weren't going to relent. And so Alan ended up tossing my stuff. He said, hey, give a listen to this kid. He's been in baseball throughout his whole career. He's played. He's an analyst. And that was it. I mean, that's uh, I got a chance to fly out there, meet with Scotty Geyer and the, and the Diamondbacks, and I got hired. And, you know, everything's kind of snowballed since then. So it was, it's a little convoluted. It was compressed. People ask me all the time, how'd you get into broadcasting? And it's like, man, you know, it was a fluke thing. It was like right place, right time. You know, from, from Tony to, you know, Rick giving me a chance because you know, he knew my dad. And then MLB Doc Jeff Spaulding because he knew my dad got me an MLB.com. And it just kind of snowballed from there, you know. And, and I've been fortunate now. I've been 14, 15 years doing this at the major league level. It's been uh, been kind of interesting. I want to unpack a lot of that, but uh, I, I want to ask you kind of a wonky non sequitur question first because you bring up 2002 uh, and the call on the, the hit that ties it. Do you remember the whole situation when it was decided that game was going to end in a tie and how you handled that from a broadcast standpoint and trying to kind of figure out what's going on? Uh, what happened was there is that we had a couple of guys that were doing the game. Seth Everett was another uh, guy that uh, he's been around a long time as well doing broadcasting. So I had the middle four innings of that broadcast and then he had the beginning and then the tail end of it. But we were all right there together. Um, I, I didn't I, at the time. I, I didn't think anything of it. I mean, I've always thought of and still do uh, think of the All Star Game as an exhibition. It, it is what it is. Who cares? Um, people tend to forget that uh, one, it went extra innings. Two, every imaginable player was used in that game. And three, was, you were there for over three hours, and it was and it was a lot of fun. And you had a terrific Tory Hunter, Rob Barry Bonds, and right center field. I mean, it was just a great game. I don't know what else you could ask for. Um, and then it all, you know, boils down to Bud Sealing, you know, the, the infamous picture with the umpires and the managers trying to figure out what to do. Um, and then, you know, this time it counts garbage started. And uh, thankfully, that's all now gone with the new CBA. And I think it was Freddie Garcia just left standing out on the mound yeah. for all that that's time. It, that's it. <laughs> um, if I can go back to when you got into things with the Newark Bears, mm-hmm. what's your thought process? Obviously, you get into it saying, hey, I want to explore broadcasting. But when you wind up the general manager of an independent team, um, is there a thought in your head that says, hey, maybe I can make a good living for myself trying to get into a baseball front office or work in minor league baseball um, and general managers are different in affiliated ball and independent ball, but kind of exploring that route and what kept your heart glued to broadcasting, which I'm sure at some point has to kind of become secondary to all your responsibilities as a as a GM? Sure. Um, you know, honestly, the honest answer is is that I went into it um, I guess head first, first as an assistant GM responsible for player procurement. Because you know, you're talking about January, February, uh, season doesn't start. It's not a full season, but it's you know uh, it's a little bit longer than a, than a, than a short season. Um, and so I knew that the season wasn't going to happen till May, and so we had plenty of time to worry about the broadcasting aspect of it. And, you know, and, and dealing with agents, and especially the Conseco situation, it became kind of a, a league-wide deal. Um, you know, it certainly got my juices flowing and thinking about, um, you know, the whole GM side and baseball operations. And um, I certainly enjoyed that part of it, um, even more so really going into the second season um, in that role because while we got to the, the, the finals that, that first year in 01, ended up losing to uh, the Somerset Patriots um, down in Somerset, you know, I – I didn't 
while it was great to have all these major league players and the hype and all that stuff, it just wasn't really a well put together team. Um, it was just a lot of big names. And, you know, I thought it through and I made some changes and I decided I, you know, we had a 24 man roster, um, got rid of 22 players, kept two guys, um, Joe Mathis, our center fielder, and Pito Ramirez, our catcher. And then I built the team from scratch, essentially. Um, and so that was a lot of fun. And Rick being, you know, Rick, he, we always got the list from Major League Baseball, the uh, six-year minor league free agents with phone numbers. And then you start looking up the stats and then numbers. And you really didn't have, um, you know, a lot of background information on a lot of these guys. You had a phone number, a contact, maybe an address. And even some of those things are, you know, outdated, you know, because players move all the time. Um, but all you can go off of is what the minor league numbers said. And um, you know, I was able to put together you know, a pretty good team. I, I traded Lance Johnson. Uh, I treated it kind of like a fantasy league team, really, honestly. <laughs> uh, but I traded Lance Johnson to Nashua for a player named Jimmy Hurst. And uh, I always liked Jimmy. He was a super talented guy. I was a prospect at one point with the Tigers when he was playing. MVP he wound up being, right? Yeah, he tri- won the Triple Crown that year for us. <laughs> yeah, so he was the MVP. Uh, so it ended up being a pretty good trade, and uh, you know we ended up winning the whole thing that in, in 2002. And so, you know, I always I had to find that balance, right? So I, I fell in love with the baseball operations side and dealing with agents and players and contracts and managers. On the flip side, uh, I had to fire a manager whom I didn't really care for a whole lot, and I wanted to bring in my own person. Um, in the meantime, getting a taste of you know broadcasting games. Um, and getting that, getting you know, kind of that conversation beginning with MLB.com, and like, all right, now I can see that avenue working out, and then doing, you know, going into the following season, doing the All Star game. So, while after I did the All Star game, and I started going to the off season, while I contemplated doing the baseball operations side of things, I think my mindset had already really been committed to, I'm going to stick out this broadcasting thing and see where it goes. And you know, fortunately for us, it, it worked out well that. You know, going into what we thought was going to be our last year, it turns out to be our first year of this this unbelievable Major League Baseball journey, starting with the Diamondbacks. You know, all of that is going on in your life, and it's interesting. And one of the things I, I, I like about your story is, while I'm reading about you getting into broadcasting, it, you you cared greatly about that side of things. And the approach wasn't just, I'm a former player, I'm going to get into this, it seems like it's something I can do. There was a, there seemed to be a concerted effort to to really take it seriously and learn early on as well. Um, what did you do going about figuring out how to be a broadcaster, not just a, an analyst as a former player, but as a play-by-play guy? Mm-hmm. Uh, and where'd you find the time to do it all with everything else that was going on in your life? You know, I, I think um, I really leaned on the archives and, and and of the radio calls that we had at dot com. Um, it, it just became a, a perfect resource for us to to just be able to listen to stuff and be able to go back at certain games, even historical games, and just kind of listen to the way th- people used to do things. And I grew up in Kansas City because my dad played there. And even after he played there, obviously, Denny Matthews is still there. Um, I grew up listening to Denny. And so whenever I would, you know, mess around, whether in a clubhouse or whatever, and start doing play-by-play, my I always my default has always been kind of Denny, uh, straightforward, uh, kind of that dry wit, a uh, little snarky, you know, in there uh, as well. And um, so at least that was my, I guess, my, the genesis for which I, I was able to derive whatever style you want to call it that I now have or possess. And it's obviously evolved over so much time. Um, 
But I, I think at the end of the day, it just became one of those things for me where, all right. And again, I go back to that all-star game call where it dawned on me. I'm like, man, I can actually do this. I didn't. I don't know that I actually believed that I could do this up until that point or that I was good enough. You know, because you, every offseason, having, you having worked in minor league baseball, you know what it's like. You, you put all the feelers out there because, you know, broadcasters tend to move on a yearly basis, especially at the lower levels. And you get back some of the letters and no thank yous. And then you, know, you start to get frustrated, especially in year one of doing it. Um, but I think that call um, and just doing the game in general kind of solidified, all right, I think, I'm, I think I'm on the right path. I believe that I'm capable of doing this at the major league level. Um, you know, and, that, and so I made a concerted effort at that point. I said, you know, hardcore. Now, that's, that being said, uh, it was difficult the first year um, to, ca- to, to not care as much about stuff that's happening on the field um, while doing a game. Uh, obviously, an independent ball, you don't have a minor league system. So you see one of your guys getting hurt. You know, you're making not only making the call and you're seeing the trainer walk out there and you're, you're ex- explaining everything, describing everything. I got to find a second baseman. <laughs> <laughs> I got to find a second baseman, exactly. And that's, so I got to go back to, you know, that night or the next morning, six year minor league free agents and who can I get here? And, you know, there's budgets. And so that's, that's, that was a tough. You can quote some unnamed sources, though. Huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so it became difficult at that point, you know, and, and I think I carried that over when I first got hired that. Um, even with the Diamondbacks, something bad happened on the field. You know, I took it personally because I was so heavily vested in what was happening in the front office, the field, and then the broadcast that uh, I had to peel back somehow. And it took me a couple of years after getting the major leagues to, to finally do that. It kind of gives you an interesting insight, though. And it, part of, I, I think, probably your upbringing does this as well. And the fact that you were a player does this as well is that you look at the game a whole heck of a lot differently than any of us quote-unquote you know media type broadcasters would do so um have you noticed that being a a help in the way you you do what you do now throughout your career um i've noticed it because i've been told uh, on a number of occasions it's been a couple years since they told me this but uh that uh you know Mark Gubiz, who's my analyst and has been for the eight years I've been with the, the Angels, uh, let Gooby be the analyst. Don't break things down. And it's, I, don't, I don't feel like I've broken things down. The, the, the difficult part for me had been um, I know the answer to every question I'm asking Mark. And so I still have to ask it, and I still have to ask it in a form that uh, it's the first time a viewer's heard it. And, if, you know, that I'm actually the inquisitive one here trying to – pull this information out for not only myself but for the viewer at home and you know i've you know i've found a happy medium um you know we don't i guess the knock on me sometimes from from up above is you know that i don't ask enough questions and to me the remedial stuff i mean it just it becomes somewhat cumbersome i think for a viewer at home to to kind of relive kind of I don't know, little league kind of stuff, little league information. And I'd rather know other stuff, especially now with the, the sabermetrics and how we're now into, you know, stat pass and, or not stat pass, stat cast and stat pass is one of our resources. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, exit velocity and all the different, def, different metrics that are out there. And I think, I think that's more important to educate fans on that as opposed to, you know, really educating fans anymore about, you know, the nuances of the game. The American League is pretty basic. National League I can understand a little bit more so, but the American League is different. How do you approach dealing with 
Statcast and advanced metrics and all of those things where imagine more so on television than on radio, you have an opportunity to explore those types of things. But at the same time, it's probably very easy to get stuck in the mud on that kind of stuff and get to the point where you've just really confused somebody at home as opposed to laying it out as as simply and concisely as possible. How much work goes into it for you to make sure you're doing it that way as opposed to meandering down this path where you kind of get lost after a while because I imagine that's pretty easy. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. And I think think we're starting now, I think the last year, two years, we're getting away from, and I think it's a good thing, um, the advanced metrics. I think there's still a, there's always a place for metrics uh, in baseball and sports in general. But I think this constant push over the last, you know, I guess go back four or five years, of we really need to educate the viewers on on war and and you know FIPs and and WHIP and and it was a real constant push and it's it's a it's a balance that you've got to find you know there's there's this very small percentage of your viewer one cares two understands it so you've got the majority of the viewers on a nightly basis that you know don't understand what we're talking about besides average home runs rbis that we all grew up with and it's been that way for since the beginning of time watching the game on tv everything that comes up on a screen graphic wise is that we've added on base percentage um some people have added ops and i think it's a slow transition uh so that people at home can understand what it is that we're talking about and how we i guess measure a player's talent or skill level comparatively speaking to everyone that's around them um I think the last couple of years, because of StatCast, uh, and I think it's a constant push by Major League Baseball, at least I believe, to obviously try to get the, the demographic younger. And I think it's a good thing. Um, I think StatCast, because it is, hey, how fast was that that ball traveling? Or off the bat, what did it go? What's the distance? You know, I think those are easy things that you can – they sound great. They're sexy. It's kind of a video game type mentality. True. Um, and people now, that's all they care about. You know, nobody's really asking about whip and, and all, the, all the other stuff that you kind of need to know in order to put the team together. But I think that's where I think it, it, it separates. You know, as a casual fan, you just, want, you just want the basics. You want to watch the game. You want to enjoy it. You want to get some, you know, some tangible information. But you don't want to be overwhelmed. And I think we're doing that now, whereas I think baseball operations and anybody who likes that side of things, it's still there. That information, the, the sabermetrics part of it, is still there. And you can break st- stuff down uh, however you'd like and kind of apply it however you'd like. But I think there, it, there'll always be – you need eyes. You have to have scouts. Eyes tell you if a guy can play. I think numbers either uh, prove or disprove what your eyes are telling you. I think that's the way you have to look at it. One more question about uh, the learning of the craft, and then I want to dive into a couple other things with you. Um, but when you when you got into play-by-play and, and you dove headlong into it, uh, what did you find was easier than you expected, harder than you expected? Uh, how did it all strike you? How did it all hit you? And, and kind of take me on your journey of becoming good at it and, and how that all developed. Well, good is, you know, it's kind of a relative term. I think it's all in the eye of the beholder. But um, I think the technical side of things for me, you know, even just using a little Comrex, I, yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea how to a dial-up line or an ISDN line or, you know, how to use a machine. And learning that side of it, we, we were fortunate because Rick was a uh, Cerrone, 
uh, graduate of Seton Hall University. And so our radio station was through Seton Hall's. Um, so whenever we did our games, it was over there. And fortunately, we, uh, we had a, a guy that worked over there, an engineer, student, Matt Marcus. Um, great guy. He kind of helped teach me that side of it so that I understood what it is what we were doing if I had a problem. So that, to me, was the hardest part. Um, the second hardest or most difficult for me was, um, you know, how much do I talk? What do I what am I describing? How, how in detail do I need to be when I'm describing things on radio? Because that's how I, I started was on radio. And um, and finding the balance, you know, and where can I just kind of give my two cents versus actually describing action, the lull in action. What, what do I do? Do I talk about the fans? Do I talk about the sky? Do I talk about whatever? Um, and I think that takes time. I don't, I, I don't think you really get that until you are... Honestly, I mean, unless you're a savant and you're just, you're just meant to be in this business, I think for the average Joe, and I consider myself an average Joe in this business, having not gone to school for it, I think it takes you four or five years and repetitions to, to kind of settle into, all right, this is how I like doing things. I know that this is how Vin does it or this is how Denny Matthews does it or whomever. Um, or a guy at AAA, it doesn't matter. Um, you, you, all, you have to eventually find what it is that kind of your comfort zone, your wheelhouse. And uh, because things happened so fast for me, two years at the minor league level, the MLB.com stuff, one year with the Diamondbacks, you know, I got to work with Greg Schulte as strictly an analyst, and that evolved into play-by-play and doing a couple of TV games to all of a sudden be hired by Texas and spending time with Eric Nadell for five years. And I think it was... As much as I love Greg for breaking me into the big leagues, I think I am who I am today because of, you know, the way Eric went about his business. And I tried to emulate him, and I realized quickly, you know, a month into the season, they're like, this is stupid. I, I'm not him. I, I don't work well with all of these notes all over my scorebook, you know. And, and so that, you know, now I'm talking four years into it, four and a half years, five years. And it's still evolving, I think, you know, as a, for me as a TV guy um, now, you know, I'd never really done TV except a couple of filling games for Josh Lewin uh, in Texas. And then I did some games with MLB Network when I was there. But prior to that, I wasn't a full-time TV guy. So then I had to kind of start the process over of learning this side of the business and talking to a producer and a director, um, you know, all the reads that we do at the major league level, especially on TV, you know, it's just it kind of ruins the ebbs and flows of a game, but it, it is what it is. It's what pays the bill. So I, I think you constantly evolve. But for me, those uh, those two things, really, the, the, the technical side and really the uh, the machinations of, uh, of, of the actual job of play-by-play on radio, you know, I think those two go hand-in-hand hand for me. Those are the two hardest things I had to do. What's your book look like uh, if, if the – the, lots of color on it uh, going into the game didn't work for you. Um, what does, and, and how does your mind work in terms of cataloging what you want to know going into something? I, I put the basic information down. I have the same information as everybody's, you know, the, the average I have on base percentage, doubles, triples, home runs, RBI. I have all the team information, where they rank in the league. Um, but the rest of my book, unless there's nuggets, I take that back, early on in the season – Though, since we're just beginning and we're playing new teams, um, I put you know a little information, age, um, where they're from, type deal, and if there's something good there, nugget wise. But otherwise, 
perfectly honest, if you look at any of my score sheets, for the most part, they're, they're fairly blank. Um, I don't call the game off a monitor. I call the game off the field. And I think sometimes while it's good to have, you know, nuggets of information that you can insert into games, at-bats, between pitches, I think sometimes you get too lost and too keyed into worrying about, I've got to get this. And that's what happened with me and Eric. You know, I, I did the middle three innings on radio, and I had all this information and all these nuggets that I wanted to get in. I just felt like... I didn't find the time to get this one in, and it's like then I became frustrated that I wasn't getting the information I was researching in, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, you know. And I think sometimes if you get too keyed in on that, you're more worried about that information as opposed to what's happening in front of you. And I think that gets lost sometimes with, uh, especially young broadcasters, you know, because you, you want to impress, right? You want to use the big words, you want to use the big terms, the sabermetrics, and you, this and you know, all the history, uh, family history, and you know this guy, you know, he's a waiter at Applebee's back in and. You know, substitute teacher, and that's great if you have it and there's time for it. But I think people at home, they want the game. They do want some nuggets of information to kind of help you uh, shape the individual if you're trying to talk about someone on you know, a particular broadcast. Then I understand it. But otherwise, I think you just have to do the game. And I think that was the hardest thing for me is just finding that balance. This may be a hard question. I don't know if there's a right answer. Uh, to you, what's the best way, the right way or the right time if you want to get into the fact that John Smith was a waiter at Applebee's to pay his way through the minors, uh, because you always say, don't force those stories. Right. Um, where's the gate open to get that kind of stuff in? You know, I think, I, I think it's hard. And, you know, Vin, God bless him, people tend to forget, somehow, he worked by himself. So he had three-plus hours every single night where he controlled the microphone, controlled the flow, controlled whether or not you go to a replay. He can insert whatever stories and continue to talk about a story and finish it off. It could take a whole half inning and still get you the play-by-play. Well, you're watching it on TV, so it doesn't really matter. On radio, it's different because they used to simulcast his first couple of innings on radio. And so you got to be a little bit more descriptive. But it's harder. I think it's harder and harder to weave in a complete story, unless you've got a blowout, you know, whether on the winning side or on the losing side, then, you know, the analyst doesn't really want to break stuff down, you know, because there's, you know, people at home are like, oh, this is, this is a waste of time. Um, but the flip side to that is that more times than not, if it's a blowout, you're not, you don't have a captive audience. You know, you've got somebody that's just kind of, it's on. They're not really watching. So are you wasting those nuggets at that point? You know, you, you kind of have to, um, find the the right time and the balance for that. The other thing that comes up too is while you have nuggets of information, let's say on your own players, 162 game schedule, how many times do you bring that nugget up? Because everyone talks about resetting a game, right, in the middle of the part of the game. Hey, it's we're in Cleveland, it's game one, whatever, the score, this is what happened. So how many times do you reset that same story over the course of a year on the same player? Because you know you're not going to have the same audience on day one as you did on day 50, day 75, day 162. It's a completely different audience. Might not an inning one versus inning four. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, so it's it's some of the things that the average viewer doesn't think about. You know, it's easy to say, well, Vin does it. Well, yeah, Vin's a one guy. <laughs> he could do whatever he wants. He's a god, number one, and he's by himself. And it's, I, the game, this business, has changed 
you know, where you've got two, three guys um, and ladies now in the booth. And, you know, all those little nuggets of information, unless you can somehow weave them in there, they get lost by the wayside because people want to talk about what's happening on, on the field in the game. So I don't know if there really is a, a right answer to it. Um, I just know in my situation, I'd love to, um, you know, because, you know, on radio, you, you can kind of do that. On radio, you're really a one-man band. The analyst is, you know, if there's a play after the play or if there's a foul ball after the foul ball, he can speak. Other than that... You know, when I point to you, you then go. No, I'm kidding. Um, but but you, but you can you control the tempo and the flow, so you can weave in kind of like Vin does, because Vin was a radio guy originally on TV. That story and kind of take it through the at bat or into even after the out and continue that story through that. You know, and that's makes it a little bit uh, easier to do that. I've got to let you go here soon because I know you've got a game to prepare for as well. Uh, but you said something I wanted to hit on also, and that's that you call the game on the field as opposed to off the monitor. Uh, what do you like about that? Um, and what do you not like about uh, the fact that you don't always see the monitor? I guess what's the pros and cons of, in, in both directions of that and what works for you in terms of going off the field in front of you? I guess the con would be that I'm not watching the same thing the director and the producer is watching in the truck. Um, I think the pro of it is that I'm not watching what the director and the producer is watching <laughs> in the truck. They're limited to a box, you know. They're limited to a certain spot. And um, for me, um, there's been a number of times, because I am watching the field and everything that's going on, you know, my uh, my field of view is a lot greater than, you know, whatever camera is called up right at that point. And so I can see certain things or certain reactions. It's like, um, you know, it's like following a runner down the line on a play, you know, on a shortstop and ball hitting the hole, you know. So what happens on a play like that, especially if it's a great play? Well, you see the out, and if it's a bang-bang play, you're looking at the umpires, they're cutting to this and they're cutting to that. They're showing the viewer at home what's going on, building up, you know, you know let's go to the dugout now because you don't know if they're going to challenge the call. Well, meanwhile, you know, what if the runner grabbed the back of his right leg after he crossed the plate or the bag? You know, is he hurt? So there's just little things like that you can't pick up. And you get it eventually. Um, but if you're at home watching what's what they're showing you, um, there's no sense in me continuing to talk about what you're actually already seeing. You're seeing it. You you can make your own determination on what you're seeing on the on the screen. I think if I see something that happens here, um, case in point, uh, yesterday or Sunday, guy um, Nick Franklin loses his bat, helicopters into the stands. Well, nobody really watches. Nobody takes a camera and follows the bat into the stands, right? Someone does eventually, but that's not what you're seeing at sure. that point. That you, used to, you see it on replay. Well, I follow the bat the whole way. If I'm watching the monitor, I don't see it. Well you're watching the monitor you don't see the guy with one hand reach up grab the bat in midair it's helicoptering and just and hold on to it and everyone goes crazy you know we had it on the on the replay but it's just little things like that that i think you lose by getting too focused in on your scorebook and on the television monitor and i think you and if you've done this long enough uh, you know when someone's calling especially if you watch a nationally televised game you know if someone's calling a game off a monitor there's there's enough of a delay between a swing and the excitement or the non-excitement of a ball that's hit, especially when they're down the lines. 
because you could you could just tell because you see the swing on TV and it looks good and you hear sound effects especially if you get your crowd uh, mic loud in your ear uh, you hear that that solid contact and you see the big swing you hear people <gasps> like that but it's it's foul by like 15 feet but someone's on TV calling it oh it's a shot down the line well it's, I mean it's I call that foul from the minute it's off the bat because I'm watching it on the field. So I think there's little differences, and it's just the way I prefer to do it. it is, I don't think my way is the right way to do it, but that's, just, that's where I've, I've found a, a nice little comfort area that I, I like to, to call a game from. Last question, so you don't kill me here. Mm-hmm. Um, you have had the distinction as a broadcaster of calling two 600th home runs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did it for Sammy Sosa in Texas, and obviously you did it uh, for Albert this year. Uh, Irvin Santana's on my fantasy team, so thanks for that. Uh, but one of the coolest things about that is you posted the video on YouTube of you in the booth yeah. calling that 600th home run. And I thought that that was really interesting just from a broadcaster's standpoint to see your demeanor as the whole thing happens. And it looks like any other moment in a baseball game until he hits it. And then there's obviously the, the emphatic reaction from you as well. Um, but take me inside your mind for moments like that. And you've said that... and. And I, and I think it's the right way to do it, that you're not going to script anything like that ahead of time. Uh, but just kind of, there, there seem, it literally seems like you're calling any other pitch until he hits it, and you're just cool, calm, and collected, and then it happens and you put a call on it that you're proud of. Uh, take me through the lead-up to that and how you handle situations like that so that it comes out the right way on the end. You know, on Sammy's... Um... I had Sammy's 498 and 499 in Cincinnati. 99 was a grand slam. And I remember um, telling Eric Nadell the next day, because I think we played one more game in Cincinnati that day. Um, I said, listen, from now on, I mean, you're, you're the guy that's been here 20-some years. You're going to be a Hall of Famer. Every time Sammy comes up, you take the call. I don't want the call. I mean, I'm nobody. This should be you. And he said, absolutely not. He goes, when it happens, it happens. And, um, you know, flash forward, we were in, in, in Arlington. The Cubs are in town. Um, and it was just like the perfect scenario. And I didn't, I thought it was cool that the Cubs were in town and potential 600 home run, a little redemption, if you will, for Sammy. Um, but it wasn't up until he came up in that moment that, you know, it's Jason Marquis. They gave Jason Marquis Sammy's old number 21. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like the perfect storm, and it just so happened it was in my innings, um, and then he hit that ball to right center field. I, I think it's just a game, you know. It's a it's a big moment. You can, you know, for Sammy's we were it wasn't too big of a buildup, but it was just a couple of days difference between ninety nine and and and, um, and six hundred. But um, you know, I, I just didn't. I don't like thinking about things that are scripted. It's like I watch certain events um you know especially to you know i like i watch a lot of golf and you know it just seems like it's anticlimactic sometimes in golf especially you know especially when tiger was going good you know what i mean it's like and then all of a sudden hit the final putt and it's just like this this momentous call it's like yeah we all knew he was gonna win you know what i'm saying it's like it just seems so disingenuous and i've never wanted to be that guy um and so whether it's a home run meaningless home run someone's you know fifth of their career or their 600th of the career i just i treat it as the moment comes um the same with albert you know he hit he hit uh 599 off bartolo it was on a monday i think it was tuesday and then you know the next couple of days he didn't do anything 
So you, you, know, you talk it up, you build it up, here it comes. But it's just another, here's the 1-1. One, one. You know what I mean? It's, that's all it is. It's, just, it's still the game. It's not like this grandiose moment. You're, you're waiting for the grandiose moment to happen. Everyone's tuned in. Everyone's watching. Um, and I remember Harold Reynolds texting me telling me, hey, we're watching. Every at-bat that Albert comes up, we're watching him. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think too much about it. And Irvin was so filthy that day. I mean, he was nasty, and he ran into a little trouble. And when he uh, when he got two strikes on, I'm thinking he's he's done. He's gonna throw him another slider. He's he's just toast. Um, and just and I think that that comes off in the video because we thought he was gonna probably be an out, and all of a sudden, holy cow! He hits the crap out of it, and it's da- and it's down the line. So you're trying to you're trying to figure out if it's gonna stay fair or foul. You know, it had home run distance. And Albert went into his pose, and it's just you know it's just another call at that point. You know, it just it just attached number six hundred to it, as opposed to number you know sixteen on the season. It just so I get out of my chair. I, I learned that from Eric Nadell in Texas. Uh, he was he's a guy that pops out of his chair in, in big moments and gets excited. I do it all the time. I fist pump, uh, especially big big late hits. Um, I'm a very emotional person when it comes to to the game, especially when good things happen for us. And um, I hope it came off that way on the on the thing. And that that whole video, um, our stage manager, I told him after Albert hit 599, I said because I had started doing some Instagram live stuff in the booth during a game, just showing us what we do, and then turning it off when the game started again. That I thought it'd be cool to have something, you know, what it'd be like. I had no idea what it was going to be like. I didn't know if it was going to be down the left field line, down the right field line, the opposite field, the pull shot. Yeah, I had no idea if it was going to be at home, on the road. And so I said, hey, every time we're at home or every time he comes up, take my phone, turn on the camera, and just video. So, I mean, you know, from like Monday or Tuesday or whatever till Thursday, <laughs> it's like delete, delete, <laughs> delete. And all of a sudden he, he hits it, and I do the fist bump, and I look at him after the fact, almost like, did you get it? You know, and it was like... It was perfectly filmed. I mean, it's like it's almost like we had a tripod set up. I mean, it was like perfect to the nines. Almost as if Fox had planned it and put a camera in our booth. Yeah, I, I, I'll be honest. I thought that's what it was. No, it was our stage manager Dean Benson with my phone in the corner, just shooting us every single at bat until uh, until Albert hit number six hundred. That's awesome, yeah. uh, Victor. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I could go on with you for forever, but you've got to go do a game. So I uh, sincerely appreciate you taking the time out of your day and out of your prep to uh, to sit down and talk with me. My pleasure. Love talking broadcasting, especially with young broadcasters, and uh, anything I can do to help, always. Victor Rojas, our guest on episode 59 of Play by Playcast. Quick disclaimer, too, if we can go back to the very beginning. Uh, I mentioned the Newark Bears in the open, and we talked about uh, Victor getting an independent ball at the start, and um, he mentioned that I had worked in the Atlantic League, and I did, not as a broadcaster. But when I was in high school, I was a ball hawker in the stands. I used to sell post-game pitch balls, the game where you throw the ball onto the field and try to get it into any number one of, or any number of targets and you win prizes. I used to sell those at the Somerset Patriots um, every night as a kid in high school, and then I eventually interned in the media relations office as a, as a college freshman with the Patriots. But... I was also a huge autograph hound at that age in my life, so I actually remember distinctly the 2001 Newark Bears because I, I would go to work, and then as soon as you got off work, and you, they would let you off at some point in the ninth inning, you could clock out, 
take off your Somerset Patriots team-issued staff polo, and as long as I had another T-shirt underneath that didn't say I worked there, I could run down to the dugout and get autographs of all of those big-name guys that Victor Rojas had signed as they went back into the clubhouse. And Jose Canseco is like the one... Jose Canseco and Ricky Henderson, who went on to play for the Newark Bears as well, are the two guys I never got. I don't remember how I didn't get Jose. Ricky, I got off work one day, ran down to the dugout, and I was the third person in line. Ricky Henderson signed two autographs and then said, this is a quote, and I will never forget it. He looks up and goes, Ricky got to go take a shower. (laughs) <laughs> and put his bats on his shoulder and walked back into the dugout, which I thought was pretty outstanding. Uh, but the Atlantic League is very cool in that way because there are a lot of guys of that ilk uh, that come through that league all the time. And I'll be honest, the, the story of Victor working his way through the Atlantic League the way that he did to become a broadcaster in the way that he has uh, is really awesome and intriguing. Uh, and then, of course, I, I mean... I loved this conversation. So, so many things we can go back and touch on. Uh, I loved the anecdotes about not calling games off the monitor and what it gives him in terms of being able to see the field live and notice when a ball is going foul immediately and uh, just kind of being glued to the product that he gets there. The stuff about learning how to broadcast basically as a broadcaster um, and then certainly the, the different perspectives that he takes to being a broadcaster because he has done it while being the general manager and looks at things in a little bit for uh, a little bit of a different light and uh, what he kind of thinks about broadcasting as a guy that grew up in the game as well as a player himself and as the son of a player and a coach. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this, and I say it a lot, but uh, one of my favorite podcasts. So many thanks to Victor Rojas for being our guest this week. Um, and hopefully I didn't destroy his broadcast that night by taking 45 minutes of his prep time but that aside uh next week our guest is from the texas rangers and he is either the youngest or one of the youngest voices in major league baseball and it's not eric nadell and it's not matt hicks who is the number two guy in texas but it's jared sandler who made it to the major leagues at just 24 or 25 years of age and uh he is now the pre and post game host and fill in play-by-play guy for the Texas Rangers. He'll tell us a little bit about his story and uh, the way that he worked his tail off to get to where he is and and how things lined up so that, you know, the, the hard work met opportunity and turned into some pretty good luck and um, describe what it's like having the job that he has now. Jared Sandler is with us next week. Victor Rojas was the guest this week. My name is Joel Godet, and the music you're hearing is Marshmallow, which means we are out of time, and we will talk to you next Friday. It's Play by Playcast. We're out. We're out.